Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. As always, I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my guest today is Professor Douglas Hartman, who teaches sociology at the University of Minnesota. Professor Hartman is on the show to discuss his book, Midnight Basketball, which was published in 2016 and takes a deep, detailed look into the social initiative known as Midnight Basketball, which was developed in the late 1980s. In this episode, we unpack the racism that was built into this program, which targeted young adult African-American men who were living in large cities around the country. It is important to use the word targeted in this case because the use of surveillance was at the root of this program, which used the game as a form of control during certain hours of the day. As we discussed, this initiative is tied to our incoming presidential administration because Joe Biden was a proponent of midnight basketball during the mid-1990s and the fight for the 1994 crime bill passage. This conversation is timely and necessary to take a close look at the motivations and results of social policy that fall in line with the systemic racism inherent to our country, even when they are dressed up as help or social support. In the introduction for the book, Hartman writes that overall, the book is also an attempt to reveal and deepen our understanding of the broader social context and environment of neoliberalism, the dynamics of race and sport in contemporary society, the characteristics of neoliberal social policy, and the evolution, contributions, and limits of sport-based social intervention. Thank you to Doug for coming on and for writing this educational and informative book. And as always, thank you for listening, and I hope all of you enjoy this episode. Doug, thank you so much for joining me to discuss Midnight Basketball. I feel as though, as many people do, I'm still in recovery from the election and was not ready to record a bunch of podcasts because of, as you mentioned before, just all the different things that are happening at this moment. But I can't imagine a better time to be discussing neoliberal social policy uh, as we um, move into Joe Biden's presidency, thankfully moving into Joe Biden's presidency on my end, um, but also with a critical eye that uh, looking back at some of the the policies that existed um, in the 90s and and such things. And of course, you know, midnight basketball being a sort of sport for social change initiative so interesting to look at how effective or ineffective that is, and I'm just excited to jump into this book. So thanks for, for joining from Minneapolis. And for, um, for everyone listening, uh, Doug is a professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota. So yeah, welcome, Doug. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I think that I just want to start out with... Um, your relationship to sports and how, as a sociologist, you came to think of sports as something that could help you learn about our society. Wow, that's a, that's I hadn't thought we were going to start there. That's a, going <laughs> back. Um, I'm happy to talk about that, though. I um, sports has always been like a pretty big part of my life from growing up early on, both in terms of playing sports and being a sports fan. I grew up in southern Missouri. Um, and part of what made me want to study it, um, was the way that it intersected with, um, race and race relations and racism. 
Um, the town I grew up in in Missouri is called Cape Girardeau. It's kind of a medium-sized but really segregated town. Um, most people probably know it. It's most famous because it's the hometown for Rush Limbaugh and me. Um, okay. <laughs> we have wow. A, we have a rivalry, though. It's pretty one-sided because I'm the only one who's aware of it. But um, anyway. Cape, I feel Cape, like you're winning. You're winning. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, Cape is a, a place that's pretty segregated, but one of the um, only arenas where I had a lot of interaction and opportunity to interact with people of color, especially black kids, was in um, youth sports leagues. Um, so I had a pretty idealistic idea about sport as providing an opportunity for interracial contacts and interaction. I saw friends who had achieved scholarships and mobility through their athletic participation. Um, and so when I went to college, I had that kind of idealized vision. And then I took a sports class. Um, I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And um, not so much just from the class, but from reading, I was kind of astounded to find out that most sociologists were actually really critical of sports, um, especially in terms of the way that they perpetuated racial stereotypes and um, were characterized by ongoing discrimination um, in this arena that I thought was so wonderful um, and had a whole history of conflict and avoidance of change. Um, and so for many years, maybe up and still today, um, I've always really been fascinated about trying to put that those two um, beliefs or set of ideas together, the belief that on the one hand sport is in many ways deeply fraught with racism and racial inequalities but also as, as a place that's very highly idealized um, experientially and as fans. Um, and so that's, um, besides that I just in, enjoy playing sports and the drama sports, it's the way that they intensify, magnify, and, and really be, pro provide a, a way to think about um, race relations and racism in American society. Um, so it is kind of high-minded in a way. I think I'd always love sports and, and still play sports. And I coach my kids' teams throughout their childhoods. Um, but it's, it's partly for fun and fitness, but it's also with a critical eye um, that I'm really drawn to um, continue to study um, things about the sports world and its relationship to society. Sure. And, and this point about it being high-minded, I, I also... I feel the same way sometimes. I also think that you, you feel a responsibility towards the things that you care about. I mean, b beyond maybe what happens in the 48 minutes or however long the, the game is or whatever the, the place that it happens. And so, uh, at least for me, like, I, I feel that I, I want to be engaged with with it beyond just the, the rooting aspect. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think it sports occupies such a... Um, powerful emotional position and even just amounts of time that people devote to it. Um, and a lot of times we just kind of want to dismiss that or trivialize it or not take it seriously. Uh, and my impulse is really the opposite of that. It's like things that we are passionate about that we put a lot of time and energy into um, that are fun, that are emotional. I think we should take those things seriously as dimensions of our lives as aspects of our society um, and not kind of dismiss or trivialize them, but really figure out why we find them fun or why they're so dramatic and emotional for us and what that reveals about our 
individual personalities as well as our social relations and, and society more generally. So, so yeah, I think that's, and, and that's a kind of a challenge too in, in, in academic culture, Western academic culture, at least that is, tends to be pretty dismissive of, of sport and other forms of popular culture, but I think especially sports. Sure, absolutely. And I would say, speaking for many art departments, at least the two that I've been a part of, of at different uh, big state schools, it's like the it's really easy to resent the football team uh, and to 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 feel as though um, sports. Yeah, just to, to have some um, a disconnect there as far as the sports are for these people over here. This is for me over here. And uh, it's hard to to feel as you as though you belong in in multiple of those spaces. Yeah, I think there is that's another thing that's really both challenging and perplexing and makes it interesting to study is some of the strange investments and discontinuities and uh, imbalances we see in, in the sporting world and especially in higher ed, its relationship to the academic mission. Um, for me, those, I mean, I'm involved with those, you know, I'm on the faculty oversight committee for many years of athletics here, um, but they're fascinating puzzles too about how we've created these institutions and structures um, that seem so unevenly balanced and, and in strange relationship to other things that we do in our lives. Um, so I think there's fun and exciting aspects of that. And then there's really perplexing ones and all of that makes for great sociology. So I'm just wondering, you talk about it a little bit in the book, but if you could just describe how you came to take on researching and writing about this sort of social initiative, is initiative the right word? Yeah, I call it that sometimes. It's a project. It was an experiment. Um, there's a lot of different ways you could think about it. I do think there, and maybe even a little bit of a movement. Um, but uh, you, you're asking specifically how I got interested in studying midnight basketball. Yeah, and then also if you just want to explain a little bit about just midnight basketball, just briefly, like what what it means, what okay. it is as a as an initiative. So yeah, I mean midnight basketball really started in the late '80s. Um, a town manager in a, in a Maryland suburb, um, Prince George's County, I guess, uh, G. Van Stanifer had this, he was uh, not a sports guy, but had this idea um, to use, he saw kind of black guys playing basketball and was worried about problems of crime and delinquency in this community and thought he could put the two together. So to use the passion that these young black men had for basketball as a way to deal with their, what he saw as their problem behavior late night and so started a league, a basketball league, um, late at night. And the idea was to keep these guys more or less off the streets during what he thought of as the high crime hours. Um, so that got started. It got some good publicity um, and eventually and pretty quickly got picked up um, around the country, especially after the Chicago Housing Authority launched its own version of the league. And that was pretty important because it was kind of with the support of then um, Housing and Urban Development Secretary Jack Kemp. The former football star. So he yeah, kind of he sounds like of, such a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he saw a lot in there as a, a sports side, and he was a kind of um, attempt to be a ca compassionate conservative. So he also cared about race relations and alternative ways to do social programming. So started that that program. So this started interestingly in the early years of the or in the years of the Bush, first Bush administration. So it was actually um, a Republican initiative, really that kind of. It was in fact one of the thousand points of light of George Bush's kind of compassionate conservative um, approach. It was um, one of the signature aspects of that, of his program. Um, 
So then Bill Clinton got elected and in his Clintonian fashion, um, doubled down on midnight basketball and said, I like that program. It was kind of this centrist neoliberal thing and, and started promoting and building those programs up even further. Um, and, may, and it ended up becoming kind of the centerpiece of um, some of the new ways, supposedly new ways that Democrats were thinking about crime intervention and prevention. I won't get too lost in that story yet. We could talk about it a lot. Uh, I got interested in it though, um, throughout this time, I was kind of tracking it. And I personally had a couple connections. Um, one of the most important ones was I was at the time I just graduated from college in Chicago and was working for a, a, a black um, a community organizer and basketball coach who was one of the early um, kind of consultants to that project in Chicago. And so he uh, kind of tasked me with doing some research on it and coming up with some recommendations um, that he could think through uh, for that program. He ended up being pretty critical um, because he was uh, of this, he was really more oriented toward using sport for education um, than just for, just for crime prevention. Um, but that got me kind of in some interesting circles to see that program taking place. Then I saw it was happening in the crime bill debates in 1994. I was actually in graduate school then working on my uh, book on the 1968 Olympic protests, but I was kind of curious for what was happening. And, and as that was unfolding, um, got connected with another midnight basketball program in San Diego. By this time in the 1990s, there was a dozens of kind of affiliate programs all around the country that were using this midnight basketball idea. Um, and so at some point, I, um, I, I never really thought of it as a research project. It was stuff I did for fun or community engagement. Um, but then after I finished my first book and started thinking about it, I thought, wow, that was really an amazing moment in the 90s that people were talking so much about midnight basketball. Um, and so that's when I really got inspired to see midnight basketball is at the center of a lot of political and policy and, and race policy and urban policy debates. Um, and so I thought, well, I should look into this more and what, what was going on with that. But a little bit like the Smith and Carlos image, it had this indelible thing in my memory where I was like, midnight basketball, that's like an interesting phrase. And people really seem attracted to that. And, it, and in this case, and it seemed like it really was in the middle of some important political and policy developments in the 90s. So that's what got me into the study of it. Sure. I could talk more about other aspects as you want to. I don't know if that was a little bit rambly, but. No, that was great. I mean, I think that one thing that makes it so relevant at this moment is because, of course, Joe Biden, uh, for, uh, rightfully so, is being pressed on his support of the 1994 um, crime bill that I think I, be, I believe funding for Midnight Basketball was a part of this crime bill. And, right. Um, so this the fact that we have an incoming president elect who is is tied so much to to some uh, neoliberal social policies from sort of uh, a while back um, just makes it feel like this this history is very much uh, alive in many ways. Yeah, I think it is. I'll, I could talk a little bit about that. I, I will say um, I I in many ways wish Hillary Clinton had been elected um, in the previous cycle, because uh, she was probably even more directly involved with midnight basketball specifically. Um, Biden was definitely involved and, and especially with the crime bill, uh, but Hillary and Bill Clinton were really purposeful about using midnight basketball 
um, as a symbol of this new democratic orientation to crime. Um, and really what the Democrats at the period, and Biden was part of this too, um, is they were kind of trying to outflank Republicans um, who had kind of led the, the charge on the crime issue and talking about gangs and drugs. And, and the Clinton um, the new Clinton Democrats um, wanted to also deal with that issue, um, take charge of it, do social policy around it, and championed um, what they thought of as an alternative approach that was emphasizing less on prisons and police and more on prevention um, and intervention. And midnight basketball really fit um, as a symbol or a model of that, probably better than it did for Republicans. It really fit the Democrats' new vision because the whole idea was to head off crime before it happened um, and to do it through innovative social programming rather than, ex and, and rather than expensive prisons and additional policing. So that was kind of what it was billed as. Now, the undercurrent and the part that is that I'm very critical of um, and that the Clintons and Biden and all the Democrats as well as the Republicans were part of is, is how midnight basketball is also deeply racialized and how it really sent these signals that the crime problem was the problem of black men in America. Um, nobody wanted to say that, Democrats and Republicans, but everybody kind of believed that. And that was really what was driving a lot of the crime policies. And that's what's kind of insidious about Midnight Basketball. It was really an innovative way to think about crime prevention, but it was also an innovative way to send racial codes and to signal who are the problems that we think we're trying to deal with and how can we more effectively deal with them. And that's where I should go back and, and mention or be clear that the innovation of Midnight Basketball that was started in Maryland and in Chicago was built on, to me, the two most powerful and oppositional stereotypes about black men in American culture. On the one hand, that they're super predator criminals, and on the other hand, that they're superstar athletes. And what Midnight Basketball did was married those two stereotypes, the one romantically positive, the other stereotypically and insidiously um, negative and pathological, but it tried to put the positive stereotype about black athletes in solution of the perceived problems about black criminology. Um, and Midnight Basketball signaled all of that without ever anybody having to say that um, because it carried in people's minds because it was basketball and black, black guys dominated basketball. So it signaled race and it signaled crime and it did it in a way where we never had to acknowledge the racial dimensions of what we were as a nation thinking about policy-wise. So to me, what was insidious there is that that's Democrats and Republicans all participated in this racial coding. Sure. That happened through Midnight Basketball. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that that was my, um, one of my thoughts was just how your, how you, the way that you thought about Midnight Basketball sort of changed over the process of learning more and more about it. And it, it certainly seems like you're saying uh, that it, and again, this goes back to a question I had earlier just about, is Midnight Basketball addressing the the cause of why, the root cause of why there might be more crime in a specific area? Or uh, is it addressing the the symptom of that, of that cause? Uh, rather than thinking about 
why yeah i i i'm i'm just wondering how how you feel about what it was capable of of doing as sort of a preventative uh initiative yeah. uh, against crime and then um yeah kind of i mean i think that this of course is ongoing with the with the stereotypes uh, that that lead to misunderstandings and um a fear of so, of so many groups yeah so i think the fear is the racial side of things um and i talked about that a little bit already and definitely one of my biggest criticisms and frustrations with men high basketball is the deep racialization and racism built into it but i think what you're alluding to when we think about policies and addressing root causes of violence or crime or safety um, that speaks to me a little bit, not only to the racial side of my critique, but my critique of kind of neoliberalism and the policies, social policies and urban policies in particular of neoliberalism. What's so unfortunate about midnight basketball and related kind of social interventions um, is in a certain sense, they were trying to solve social problems on the cheap. Um, what was happening from the 1970s and 1980s was the retrenchment, the cutback of social programs for people who are poor and disadvantaged and communities of color. We were systematically as a country scaling back on the resources that we were making available to those folks, whether it's direct provision of food and services, whether it was about education, um, whether it's social services and facilities, those were being systematically scaled back um, so that people in these communities were being isolated, left on their own, without social supports. Um, and that was, to me, a big part of what was creating problems of crime and instability and social isolation in these neighborhoods. Um, and so that's happening. And it's creating crime and social dislocation. And the intervention then is not to go to the root problems, but to do little kind of Band-Aid solutions. Um, that offer a couple of nights of basketball a week just to keep guys off the streets. Now, part of the problem with that is I'm not sure those guys are really the problem that you think they are. But another part of it is it's such a limited intervention, just a couple of nights a week. And it's not doing anything more proactive or preventative for the, and proactive is the word I should use, pro proactive for these communities. It's not about housing, not about jobs, not about any meaningful social supports or resources. That's why the guy that I worked with in Chicago, his name was Larry Hawkins, was so critical of midnight basketball. He thought sports was only a hook. And what you really needed to do was all kinds of other social programs. Sure. And midnight basketball didn't do those things, at least not originally. Um, later years, it started to do a little bit more. So really what was happening was we were, and part of why I think we bought into that as a country is we're fascinated with these ideas about sports that sports can make everything better. Coming together, create, yeah. Bring us all together, can create character. Mm -hmm. It can create order out of disorder. And so those ideologies about sports, um, doing all these fabulous things for us, we put those together with our fears of black criminal criminality. And we think we've all of a sudden solved these problems in these innovative, very cost-effective ways. And really what we've done is put Band-Aids on social problems and overlooked the deeper roots, the real causes, and, and then the real things we would need to do to address those. So that's my frustration or my kind of starting point. So even when I was hanging out with Midnight Basketball Leagues, whether it was in Chicago 
or San Diego, or once I got up here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, that was always one of my first questions and starting points was not just what's the basketball league look like, but what other social programming is happening around the program around those leagues. And many of them have nothing happening. And that's reason to be critical. The programs I tend to like in the book and, and across history are ones that use sports just as an entry point to a lot of other social programming and, and resources. Right. And how, um, and in the book, you mentioned that sometimes when stats are, are thrown around about, oh, well, you know, crime went down 30% in this place when, you know, after midnight basketball had been up and running for a certain amount of time, that, that those stats also were not always accurate necessarily. Yeah, I, we did. I did a paper or two on that. Um, I actually, it's like one of those correlation without causation kind of things um, that crime does appear to have gone down in some of the cities that started midnight basketball programs, but it's not necessarily because of the program. It's not because of basketball. Why it's probably the case is that there was a lot of social programming that was going on in those cities. Midnight basketball was just part of a larger package of, of initiatives and programs and services and resources that were being offered. I actually think sports can be a great part of that. Um, I think one of the real strengths of, a prog- of programs like midnight basketball or any sports-based interventions is they actually are something that young people are excited about and interested in. It can bring them in the door. It can get them excited. Um, You can build connections, but really what's important is the next steps. What else you do with that initial energy? What else you build around the sporting part of the program? Um, And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but, But I will say that when it works, it's when there's a lot of other resources and programming that are getting built up around and in concert with the sports programs that are that are in place. And can you talk about a specific a specific example from when when it worked? The one that I um, write about in the book, um, that's one of the official midnight basketball leagues, was the one in Oakland, California. Um, actually, not far from the district of Nancy Pelosi. She was an early big supporter of midnight basketball, um, and and that was a program that was run. Um, by one of Stanford's sons. So it had like a lot of, it had family support. They put a lot of resources into it. Um, but the strength of that program wasn't the quality of the basketball, um, wasn't even the quality of the league itself. It was the concerted effort that the organizers in Oakland had to connecting the Midnight Basketball Program to other social services and initiatives in the Bay Area. Um, so housing programs, employment programs, jobs retraining, um, and also programs like conflict resolution, drug prevention. Um, but, but they really saw Midnight Basketball as part of a larger package and fabric right. of resources and programs and services uh, for men in these communities. Um, and so that's to me what was impressive about it was kind of having a sense of how sports programming fits to larger set of social services. Um, one of the real challenges of, of sports programs is that they're often launched by people who just love sports and that's their focus. And so everybody kind of thinks that's all you need to do. Yeah. And I usually say the challenge is double because to do sports program, you have to really love sports and know sports. And you have to know how to do all kinds of other social programming along the way. So it's not a shortcut. It's actually an extra step or two of knowledge that's needed to run it well. 
Sure. And when when you say that you wish Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016, I mean, I, I agree with that for, for many reasons, I think. Um, but I'm wondering specifically because of her tie to Midnight Basketball and your book came out in 2016. Is that right? Yeah, I just think it would have helped sales a lot. I don't know that it would have looked good for her. Sure. She, she actually was one of the propagators of this super predator myth. And yes, was, of course. If you remember in the campaign, she took some heat for that. Yeah, um, that was actually kind of good for my brand. I did a bunch of interviews at that time um, about midnight basketball. <laughs> right. Uh, so that, 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 it was kind of facetious. That I mean, I would have liked her to win for other reasons. No, of too. course, of course. And <laughs> and I mean, I think you know we can all uh, agree that our candidates are flawed for many reasons. But are, are they better? I mean, I'm saying our uh, mm -hmm. as as the Democratic Party, uh, but uh, the alternative, um, there's many exciting things that could happen when when Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton is president that that are not um, and, and horrible things that might not happen as well. So we are both things are possible and other things might uh, not uh, be an issue. But I just I that was just a, a funny thing. And I realized that yeah. that was when your book came out. And yeah. that yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I was uh, after reading your book this time, I was looking up articles that had recently been been written about Joe Biden and the 1994 crime bill. And like Midnight Basketball is in a bunch of them and is referenced in a bunch of them. You know, if I just Google Joe Biden and Midnight Basketball, it's it's alluded to in all these articles. So that, that was actually that's when I realized that not Joe Biden now, but the centrality of Midnight Basketball in the crime bill debates. That's really when I got locked in on this as a project. So one of the earliest things I did research wise was look at the coverage of the crime bill debate in the summer of 1994. And something like, I, depending on whether it was newspapers or magazines or whatever, between 30 and 40% of the articles that reported on the crime bill debates talked about midnight basketball. And that's pretty astounding because midnight basketball is a tiny program. It was only funding, there was only like 35 or 40 programs around the country, the crime bill, bit to, the crime bill itself only had at most 30 million um, penciled in and it never got relayed, but it was a $33 billion bill. And 30, at least a third of the media coverage was focused on this tiny little program that nobody knew anything about. That was part of the puzzle for me is why is that? Sure. And, and then it was even more the case in the congressional record. Um, when we looked at testimony on Capitol Hill of Democrats and Republicans, literally hundreds of mentions of midnight basketball wow. in all the representatives and senators speeches, Biden, Dole, Clinton, um, you know, uh, Pelosi, Patricia Schroeder, they were all talking about midnight basketball. And I think partly it was the race stuff that I was talking about, right. but it also was a shorthand for different approaches to crime um, and crime prevention, again, that were cheaper, that were more innovative, innovative, but also as you kind of led me to talk about, that really weren't getting at the roots of the problems um, of people in those communities. Um, and really what they were, were about white fears about crime in American culture. But the, the crazy amazing thing was how central this tiny little idiosyncratic program that wasn't that well known and definitely not tested, it was at the center of that all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's it's wild because I didn't I didn't think that Googling that was going to really be as uh, there was going to be so much information as there was or, you know, so much crossover between Joe Biden and and Midnight Basketball. And even thinking about another thing that you mentioned in the book about how 
sports have been sort of sold or packaged differently for different groups of people depending on their economic status and sort of where they come from and that for a lot of um, sort of white suburban middle class families sports for their kids at least can be something that that that's happening for fun. Sports are something you do for fun, um, for maybe some like engagement with other kids and things like that. And that that is not the case for the demographic that was targeted by midnight basketball. That it. That's right. Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, the bifurcated way that we do sports provision for youth um, at that time in particular, but probably it continues today that we do sports for kids in the suburbs, white kids, middle-class kids is about either sheer entertainment, maybe physical fitness, maybe education, but it's all proactive. It's building human development, social skills, capital, social capital skills. Um, but we, when we do programming for inner city kids sports, it tends to be for purposes of control and surveillance. Yes. And wow. Mm -hmm. And so midnight basketball is kind of on the edge of that. It's it's a little, I hesitate, I should be a little bit cautious. Midnight basketball is actually targeted to an older population. Right. The original program was like 17 to 20 something years old, but it was paradigmatic and it actually created a larger wave of what scholars are called social programs, social problems-based youth sports. And that's really the sports for kids who are disadvantaged, who are in cities, and what's really different there is the provision of athletic opportunities for them isn't about education or entertainment or fitness. It really tends to be about social surveillance, social control, changing their attitudes, changing their behaviors and beliefs. That's a pretty different narrative and a pretty different funding stream. Like to give you even more concreteness, that tends to be funded then on social problems. So crime through crime programs, through housing programs, not through education, not even through parks and recs necessarily. So it's really different ways that we fund those things. Yeah, that that is a, that was an incredible distinction to to read and also I mean to hear about the the way that they're categorized as well uh, through through the government. Um, yeah, and a lot of people forget that. That's th another thing that was so interesting. Midnight basketball wasn't funded through social services. It wasn't funded as part of like sport development or Olympic programming. It wasn't funded even through parks and recs or through the education bill. There actually was attempts by some Democrats to get midnight basketball funded through these other programs, but how it got funded was as a crime prevention program. Mm -hmm. That's pretty astounding when you think about it. Right. And to even use something that that should be, I mean, that I think a lot of people do enjoy, you know, that, that, you know, look forward to playing basketball to use something that people might approach for the pure joy of it as a way to control. Yeah. I think, I mean, what I would say on that is we're actually terrified of the pure joy and fun and passion of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. We don't want that. That's terrifying for a lot of Americans. So even as midnight basketball programs were getting built, in the 1990s, um, a lot of American cities were in the beginnings of removing basketball courts, full court basketball courts from neighborhood playgrounds and park and recreation centers because it was seen as a place to create social problems, congregating risk, congregating people who were in their minds potentially would be criminals. Um, so it was all about, I mean, basketball was taking that inside for purposes of control.
Um, it's pretty amazing. I I should give you the example. I mean, just to be really concrete too, Carol Mosley Braun was the, the first black senator from Chicago, from Illinois um, at the time. She actually attempted to get Midnight Basketball funded through an omnibus education bill um, um, at that same time. Wow. So it's really, these were, I'm not just talking about theoretical choices here. There was actual political decisions being made about how and where to fund different kinds of programs. And this was all about funding a crime prevention program. It wasn't about education. It wasn't about provision of fun fitness for, for these communities. It was about control. Yeah, it's so disturbing. I mean, really. And it's all, I mean, just, you know, the name Midnight Basketball has such a, it sounds so fun. You know, I want to go to a midnight basketball game. Like, that sounds fun to stay up late and go watch basketball at midnight. Sort of like, you know, you go to midnight mass on – I don't go to midnight mass, but people go to midnight mass on Christmas yeah. Eve. And it's kind of like this, you know, at a time when, when it feels like things are shut down and empty and, and sort of uh, you're isolated. It's actually like you can come together and hang out. And so to have that also – I mean, it's just – there's a lot of conflicting things here about how, um, you know, it's, it's packaged or described and what the realities are when you're talking about control and, and manipulation. I'll give you another one on Midnight. Midnight Madness. The NCAA sure, yes. started at the same point where all the colleges would start having their first practice of the year at midnight, 1201 on the day that practice was first allowed. Think about how differently we think about that midnight basketball from the midnight basketball that was funded in the crime bill. That was midnight, that's basketball, that's best basketball at midnight. And we celebrate the craziness. We celebrate our unbelievable commitment and investment in this crazy game where we throw a leather ball through a metal hoop. And we act like that's a great thing, how crazy we are. It's madness, but that's madness being celebrated. Whereas we think super seriously about midnight basketball um, and, and we, it's not quite as fun, but it's really important. Um, and we do that in ways. And that was like, you know, George Bush, when he started this, one of the lines he used all the time was this program is about anything but basketball. It, it was about a lot. Of, and I think he was absolutely right. I'm not in district. It was about everything but sports. It was about cities. It was about collapsing communities. It was about black men and are we, how we think about them. Um, but I think it's interesting to juxtapose the way that certain sporting practices like the NCAA madness, that also has a lot of black kids on the court and how we juxtapose that against the uh, social intervention program we call Midnight Basketball and funded through a crime prevention program. Right. And, and what has happened? I mean, why did Midnight Basketball end or has it? There's still there's still programs around. Um, and in fact, there was hundreds, maybe thousands of copycat kind of programs that maybe use different sports or targeted different populations, typically not always so late at night. Here in Minnesota, when I did the research with what the, the basketball league, it wasn't an official affiliate and, and they had their games between nine and 11 o'clock. So I always used to joke that midnight comes a lot earlier in the Midwest, <laughs> yeah. up here in the Midwest. Um, so there was a lot of those programs, um, and, and, and a lot of those programs, especially targeting younger, younger, um, kids, um, and not just boys all the time, um, both in the U S and around the world, actually, this, this was an interesting provocative idea. Um, what happened after 1994 though, 
is that the programs became less of a balance of crime control and social intervention and more about liberal social intervention. So a lot of the more draconian aspects of midnight basketball, the really late nights, having police at all the games, um, having um, older, older folks there, having it be about surveillance and control, that started to go away. So the people that continue to do sports-based programming tended to do it on a more liberal kind of model, more of an empowerment model, um, and tended to emphasize then a little more social services and maybe a lot more education and character development. So still kind of liberal um, and maybe not fully supportive, but it was in a sense a little more centered, less on control and a little more on empowerment um, or, or, or um, education for the people that the programs were serving. And, and that's really to the extent Midnight Basketball continues to exist today and all the copycat programs of sport-based youth intervention programs exist. They're far more about um, kind of empowerment, education, socialization. Um, they vary in terms of how much they connect to other social services, but what they all have kind of let go of since 94 is the more conservative side of that. The more, the more really hostile social intervention and control, the emphasis on police mm -hmm. um, and the threats of crime. And so that, and that, that is a purposeful, I mean, that is a different direction that is purposefully made to move away from that type of. Absolutely. I mean, people who are doing official midnight basketball leagues in the late 1990s, they had to make that pivot because um, they, the real advocates by that point, Democrat or conservatives gave up. You know, originally when it started with Bush, there was a lot of conservatives who liked this program. After 94, conservatives had a very different vision about crime in general and about midnight basketball. So the only way you could get funded was through a kind of more liberal kind of approaches, um, but also younger, younger approaches. And, and not just for midnight basketball, anybody who was doing sports-based programming, um, it, it really became the neoliberal uh, with an emphasis on liberal and Democrat and lost that kind of conservative, whether it's compassionate conservative or a harder core emphasis on prisons and police, that drops out. Um, that's also then why most of the programming for youth sports went younger and younger um, and was more based in schools. Actually, the second George Bush, his wife, um, you might, she was a big champion of after school programs. A lot of those were kind of midnight basketball type model, but for younger kids and more after school is the time frame, not at midnight. What better time than now to support our favorite local businesses? And for me, it's Bookman's. Bookman's is the local spot for all my book needs. And Bookman's is the sponsor of this episode of Dear Adam Silver. I remember when I took a friend back in February who was visiting me, shout out to Alex McQuilkin. I took him to Bookman's because he had a long list of the books that he wanted to buy. And at the end, he had found some of them and a few more that he wasn't even looking for. That is part of the beauty of Bookman's. You never quite know what you are going to find, so it is good to go in with an open mind. It is important now in the pandemic more than ever to shop and spend our money locally and with businesses we care about and trust. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store. And the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling and trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information. And remember, 
Bookman's has cool covered. Um, and you may have already said this, I'm sorry, but why did it switch to younger populations so, so well, dramatically? Part of it, I think, was because the racial stereotypes were so hardwired in Midnight Basketball that the older guys, 17 to 24, were already presumed to be criminals or presumed to be beyond salvation. Um, they were, in other words, fundamental risks that couldn't be changed or cured. So it went to young, so you had to go younger to try to um, head off the problems before they were so deeply entrenched. I think that was a big part of it. Um, but also because that fits with the ideas about sport and social development, um, that that development, that character building, um, that happens earlier, um, typically in our imagination. Um, and by the time you're in high school or past high school age, um, you kind of start thinking about those folks as adults who are fully developed and sport doesn't have that same character building capacity. So that idea about sport as an arena for human development um, works better, I think, with younger set of kids. Um, but then also, seriously, I do think it's that um, Americans just started giving up on um, African-American men after school age. They didn't care. They only were about police and prisons and control. And the only place there was any heart or any appetite for social intervention was for, for younger, younger aged kids. Well, what you just said is depressing on many levels, one of them being that, you know, the initial program had these shortcomings as far as how it was framed and, and how it was directed at this specific group and the coded language. And also that this idea of giving up on a group of people that we share a society with uh, as far as social programs go. Yeah, I mean, that, that is depressing. And that, that's kind of the legacy of the 94 crime bill, though. Um, was the ramping up of our systems of surveillance, control, and imprisonment uh, for whole populations of people, African-American men at the very top of that list. Um, I think that's the reality. Um, and that's where, even though those programs were championed by Democrats who were thinking they were doing something different than Republicans at the time, um, what ended up happening was a lot of the more proactive, progressive, interventionist dimensions of the program fell to the wayside, of that bill fell to the wayside. And what really it gave root to was much larger police forces, much bigger and more ominous prisons and the privatization of prisons. Um, that's the legacy of that bill, um, which was passed with kind of a lot of support from both sides of the aisle who saw different opportunities and possibilities. Um, but as we look back in that history today, especially through the lens of a, of a coming Biden presidency, um, we realized part of the legacy of that 1990s era um, is created the roots of the social dislocations and problems um, for black America, um, not just in terms of our cultural ideologies, but in terms of our actual policies. And I think leads directly into this current discussion about the police and and what government interventions need to be taken in order to to change the way police interact with different communities. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, we are grappling with the, the fallout um, of that bill, which still is kind of national crime policy in a lot of ways. Um, 
Yeah, and, and you are coming to us from St. Paul, uh, which uh, is not Minneapolis, but was very close to Minneapolis and, and, and Minneapolis, of course. Yeah, the Twin Cities at the yeah. center of of the current movement, or I mean, was the the, the location of the the tipping point for uh, at least the summer's protests. Yeah, the killing of George Floyd was the kind of um, catalyst to so much. Um, social unrest and powerful movements all across the country and all across the world. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the city I did some most of my intensive field work on these sports-based programs in. Um, it's a city that is part of a state that has a long and proud vision of itself for race relations and an um, equally um, challenging history about racial gaps and racial exclusions and policing policies that are extremely brutal and violent, particularly to black men. Um, so it's not accidental at all. Um, I think that it's, that it's here. It could have been a lot of different cities, but it's it's not a surprise to me that this is a city that has, has an, 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 a metro area that has those problems. Um, I, I will say one of the things I'm heartened by at the same time is all the social movements um, in support of Black Lives Matter, in service of tremendous transformation, even um, radical transformation of policing and criminal justice systems. Um, it's scary times that we live in, um, but I think we just lived through many decades of complacency um, and, and kind of gradually ramping up problems and racist systems. And so it's um, important to see the resistance to that. Um, and in the Twin Cities, um, as well as around the country, the support for Black Lives Matter and for reform and for anti-racist uh, movements, and even the role that athletes, um, some, some athletes of the generation that um, I think were in Midnight Basketball Leagues 15 or 20 years ago, um, who are very much out on the streets, um, not only as athletes, but as citizens and, and activists um, pushing for change. I think there's, there's some reason to see possibilities of change that could break through. I think it's not gonna be smooth and, and um, easy change, uh, but I think some of that is, is starting to um, come to a head now. Um, and, and it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds as the movements unfold and as a new uh, presidential regime comes into place. And one that I would hope has a really different set of ideas than, um, than policymakers had in the 90s. Yes, I absolutely agree. I, I can't say I was thinking too critically about the 1994 crime bill because I was six, you know, so it kind of just went right over my head. But absolutely, like, that there, there could be something learned from the mistakes made before, a, a willingness to, 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 to do things in a different, do things in a different way. And I think that since uh, George Floyd was killed, there seems to be a much a broader discussion around systemic racism rather than individual acts of racism, even though we, you know, what we saw when, when he was killed was an act of individual racism and disregard and, and murder. It's also that we, we are discussing what allowed for that to take place mm -hmm. uh, in, in a broader sense than I think might have been happening, happening before, more than might have been happening before in, a, in mainstream media. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I'm heartened by the fact that we have leaders in our communities as well as out of our sports context 
who are calling that out. Um, and I'm also heartened by the levels of support um, that those folks have both across the athletic landscape and in society in general. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how this will all play out, but I think um, part of what's so powerful about the moment of activism we live in now um, is there, there does seem a real awareness of the injustices and the need for change. Um, not all across everyone, of course. Um, there's big chunks that that wouldn't that don't buy into that at all. But I think there's uh, awareness and a commitment that we haven't seen the likes of for decades, um, and it's that's um, been building up for a while now. And I think especially um, as members of these communities have had to live with the effects of the last 20, 25 years, um, that's come to fruition. Yeah, and athletes are playing a huge role in in the public, like being the pub, part of the public face of speaking out against uh, these issues. And and I wish so much. I mean, I, in some ways, I'm so excited, of course, by that. In other ways, it's like I wish the responsibility wasn't placed so heavily on um, black black men or women in, in these two, you know, in, in professional basketball to feel that that they need to speak out or you know it might not get heard. But there's plenty of white players in both of those leagues that also speak out, which is great. But I just think that, like, um, it's a, it's an exciting time for that reason to be invested in sports because the athletes seem to be invested beyond the game as well. Absolutely. I, it's, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it's athletes with consciousness, awareness, and commitment um, to use their status as athletes, their place in the sports world, um, to connect it to social issues outside of that world, to think beyond the boundaries of sport, to use a CLR James kind of frame. Um, it's a pretty amazing moment um, and a pretty heartening one from the sociology point of view where I always feel like we're trying to encourage people to think beyond the boundary of sports, how sports fits into the social world. Um, most of my career, that's been a challenge to talk about that and to teach about that. Um, and I, but I don't think there's anybody who's done it better and more effectively um, than athletes right now, um, who are really uh, kind of doing what I would have only thought was an imaginary utopian hope just a few years ago. Um, they're acting and talking and thinking and, and doing things in very sociological ways in terms of taking their participation in the world of sport and using that um, to speak to the rest of the world around. Sure. And I, I think when that strike happened in in August that I was thinking, I think it was it was in August, I was thinking, oh, you know, what if they, what if every NBA team uh, breaks ties with local police departments or something? You know, I was getting really far into it. And then yeah. it's like, oh, well, then the NBA would have to have its own police department. And then the NBA should just secede from the United States as a country and be its own republic, you know? So it's like, I was, I was going really far. But just the idea that, you know, all these arenas were used for uh, for uh, polling places on election day that were not that was not the plan before the strike for all of them, and uh, you know in one of the one uh, a state that flipped blue this year like Atlanta was one of the first uh, the Atlanta Hawks and their ownership was one of the first teams to agree to do that uh, because players pushed for it. So it's like even if the 
my pie in the sky of the NBA have seceding from the United States, which I, it feels like it's a better run, better run entity uh, than than our current federal government. It, it also is just, you know, that was a really big deal yeah. what they what they did and what they what they got out of it. It's a big deal for the statement. It's a big deal for race relations. I also think it's we're in a really interesting moment about whether we're going to see a rethinking of the role of sport in our culture, especially with respect to politics and policy. Um, I think in the 90s, when we we're talking about midnight basketball, one of the many reasons why George Bush had to say this isn't about basketball, um, midnight basketball, which was about basketball, but he said it wasn't, is because we weren't, aren't supposed to be political um, with sports. And that's been a longstanding separation in American culture for sure, and probably in Western culture, that we have to protect sports from the muddy mess of politics or the real world around. Um, and, and that kind of injunction um, or that prohibition or that norm, um, I think is really kind of up in the air right now. Um, and in a sense where we've got a lot of athletes who are talking about things that would seem to be political, um, things that seem to be social policies. I will caution, I will offer a caution though. I, I think um, that it is as much as we um, think sports and politics should be separate, we also tend to think that sports is a morally good thing, a moral social force that's fabulous. And, and I think there is a possibility that a lot of people in the country are supporting Black Lives Matter in sports, not because they've rethought their vision about sports in relation to politics, but because they've rethought their vision of, of, polit of, uh, of, of Black Lives Matter. And they see it as a moral claim now, not as a political one. Um, so that, that's kind of the older approach. Um, and that really is the historic approach throughout the civil rights movement. Um, why we could celebrate Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis and Jackie, Jackie, Rob, um, Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens um, was because we saw them as transcending politics, as standing for higher goods about higher moral goods about racial equity and justice. Um, and it was when the, it's when that breaks down and you don't agree more, you start to think about it as politics again. Um, but I think we're in a really complicated moment for this um, as all these things are kind of coming together. Um, clearly sports at the center of a lot of this as is race, but exactly what this means for the long-term and how we think about sports. Um, I think that's one of the, probably not the questions for most Americans, but for a sports scholar like me, that's one of the things I'm really curious about how this will play out, whether our norms about sports and its relation to politics, um, if those are shifting or not. So thank you so much for making time to discuss this. It's so, I mean, I know that it was a while ago that that uh, Kyle had put us in touch, but I feel like it's super, it's super timely to, to discuss this now. And as we are looking towards like the future of, of what policy could be in many yeah. different parts of our, our society and, and what we hope for. And anyways, uh, thanks so much for making this time. Thanks, thanks for, for inviting me. And yeah, it was, it was really provocative to think it through. And, and if we want to do another time to think historically or about other things, I, I'd be really excited because this was a really fun conversation. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Take care.